0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have Greer Rubling, the CEO of, of Advisor Transition Services, on the podcast today. She's an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to the details of a transition and making a transition experience as streamlined as it could possibly be for advisors and teams. If you're considering a transition, this is going to be a gr- great time for you to learn some great tips, some great tricks, and also. Um, just answer a lot of the generally asked questions that advisors have about transitions. Greer, thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to talk about this uh, crazy, crazy career that I have um, chosen for myself.
0: <laughs> Make the incredibly stressful just a little bit less stressful. That's yeah. that's awesome.
1: I uh, I manage chaos for a living. Yep.
0: <laughs> nice. If you don't mind, if you could just tell us kind of how you got into helping advisors make a transition, and how that kind of uh, evolved into your company today.
1: Sure. Um. So I have a background in client services and operations. I started out in the industry straight out of college. Uh, I got a job as a client service associate for a single producer at Smith Barney. I had a marketing degree. I knew nothing about finance. I didn't necessarily want to be in the finance world, but sometimes it's about who you know, not what you know. And I couldn't find a job in marketing because uh, an entry-level marketing job is really, really hard to get. So I heard of an opening and I got this job and I started working for this advisor and I was working for him for about a year when he decided he was going to make a move. And this was back in the day when the Wirehouse wars were still very heavily raging. And so we left Smith Barney and we went to UBS. And I went with him, and it was my first transition. I was 23 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And I quickly realized that he also had no idea what he was doing and didn't prepare me at all. Uh, so I just kind of got thrown into this process and had to learn on the fly. Um, but you know, I'm I'm an organized person. I enjoy a challenge. And so it was a really fun experience. And then the UBS office, who was also heavily recruiting at the time, they just decided I was now their transition consultant of the branch and that I was going to help onboard all of their new recruits because I was the most recent employee to have done it. Awesome. So I was yeah, I was helping all the new recruits. And then, uh, you know, this was in Baltimore at the time. I eventually moved with my now husband to Raleigh got a job in the Raleigh UBS office with another single producer who I worked for for about a year who then decided he was going to do a transition. Um, So I kind of got thrown into this transition world without ever really knowing or choosing to do so. But uh, when we left, when I eventually left UBS with that advisor, we started an RIA. And so I did a transition to the RIA space became the director of operations of an RIA and we added several advisors to our platform during the four or five years that I worked at the RIA and I was doing all of those transitions so eventually when I kind of decided I wanted to do something different um, I I looked back and I said well I've done transitions all this time and I I know that advisors really need help during this process. So I tried to find a company that was focused on helping advisors transition and I could not at all. I couldn't find a single one. And so right. I was like, all right, I've identified my niche. I've identified a need in the market. I'm gonna just go ahead and start a business. And I had just had my second baby and I was like, sure, let's just quit quit my <laughs> job and start a company uh, while I have two kids in daycare. Perfect so time that's to roll what I dance. did. <laughs> And I've just been helping advisors transition ever since. It's, uh, that's all I do now. It's just transitions. And because I come from a service background, I am not just doing the consulting work and telling advisors and teams what they need to do. I'm actually getting in there, being the boots on the ground and helping them with the actual work that's involved in a transition, which is, it's nice. It's, It's kind of this subject matter expert niche and also, like, I still get to do the work with them, which is what I'm used to and what I kind of enjoy.
0: That's awesome. And I I know multiple financial advisors that have utilized you in the past, and it's been nothing but rave reviews. So congrats on your success.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: So, so just out of curiosity, some financial advisors listening, you know, they might be thinking, well, you know, a custodian has a transition team or an, RIA or a broker dealer, they 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 have a transition team. So where does their job kind of stop and yours begin or do they overlap? Can you kind of just walk through that a little bit?
1: Yep. I actually used to get this question a whole lot when I started the business because there weren't really any transition support firms, like I said. And, and so I would have to kind of explain why a firm might need my services i would say somewhere in the last two years it's become very apparent in this industry especially with all the m a that's going on like why advisors might need a firm like mine and it's kind of along the lines of what you said there's a custodian that you're going to be working with but there's also maybe an ria or a firm that you're joining or you could be joining a broker dealer or using a friendly broker dealer and They might all have their own internal transition teams, which are going to help with all the different moving parts, but those different moving parts are really only going to be related to the things that they need for their services, for their setup, and there's no one central source that brings all of that together and helps you determine what the process should look like from an overall standpoint. So you might go get some support from the custodian, and that's going to be lovely but the, then you start asking questions about how you send out your firm documents and how you get your wealth management agreements signed by clients and the custodian support team is going to be like sorry that's just not something that we handle that has nothing yeah. to do with us we don't want to see that document so we don't really have any say on that you can do whatever you want same with the broker dealers you know the broker dealers they don't they don't really care what's happening with your advisory business and how you're doing that Plus the broker-dealer world, as we all know, it's about 10 years behind in all of their technology and compliance processes. And so you might be working with a team that is telling you how to send out overnights to get you know, documents signed that need to be notarized. Whereas like the fee-only firms, they're talking to you about DocuSign and how quickly you can get something done. And so you don't want to piecemeal transitions, you really want to try to provide a cohesive front to your clients and make sure that they understand that there could be different parts that they'd be different doing different pieces for. Mm -hmm. Um, But you want to be able to bring all of that together. And so having a team that can help you do all the moving parts and answer all of the questions for those different moving parts. That's the thing is that you don't really know who to an- to ask questions to in some cases. And so we're kind of like a general all knowledge where we'll help you understand if we don't have the answer, like who the correct person is to be asking the question to. I love to
0: that. Gathering. I love that. And I mean, just through some of your other articles that I've seen on Advisor Hub and other podcasts and things like also just kind of teaching your team like how to work together efficiently so everybody has like specific roles so you're managing time and you know Communications as as efficiently as possible um yep. and we'll definitely dig into that more later in in the podcast for sure so if if, if 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 somebody is is looking at this podcast right now they're probably considering a transition and they're starting to look at different firms and as you know, from us having conversations before, a big part of my job is trying to help filter sales spin and, and 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 fact to figure out what's truly the best fit, you know, for them. And when you're on the phone call with all these different firms, they all have a best-in-class transition team. So, I mean, if, if 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 you were on the phone with with an advisor, me and like another firm, what would be some of the questions that you would be asking alongside the advisor to determine if they have you know, a really efficient transition team or not?
1: Right. That's a really good question because I do feel like, and this is no shade to the business development representatives and the recruiters, but sometimes those are the people that aren't necessarily in the trenches doing the work and the paperwork. And so they aren't even necessarily Uh, aware of all that's involved in a transition. And their job is to get you to agree to join the firm. And so they're gonna tell you that they have a transition team because they have a transition team. And so, and they're gonna say, they're gonna help you do everything because maybe they do help you do everything. But there are significantly different levels of support that are coming from some of these firms. A lot of RIAs will rely solely on the support from the custodian and their transition team in order to manage the process. And while that is super helpful, uh, it doesn't always answer all of the questions, kind of like we said. Some of the larger firms, they might have a whole team, um, but they are kind of focused on maybe just figuring out what they need from a compliance standpoint. The biggest thing that I would say is that There is a missing piece that most firms are going to have, and that is data preparation prior to a transition. Because a lot of times the firms that are bringing on these advisors, that's whether it's the custodian, the broker-dealer, or the RIA, they can't really take an advisor's data ahead of time. And so if they don't have a structure built out to completely understand what an advisor's book of business looks like, to teach that advisor how to go and download the data that they need in order to make the transition successful, In how to manage a protocol versus a non-protocol transition where you can't bring data at all. If they haven't built out the structure internally to teach the advisor that, then it doesn't matter how many people you have working on a transition, but the transition is only going to be as strong as the advisor is in their preparation. And so sometimes it becomes less about what the team can do for you and more about the education that the team provides to you as part of the process so that you can give them the information they need to make it successful. So I would say if the team isn't talking to you about all the things that you need to do and asking you very, very specific questions about your book of business and where you get all of your data from, well, then that's a, that's a red flag. That's something um, that you need to be concerned about because you may, the business development person may tell you, Oh, we're going to do everything for you, but that's just not true. Like it's your book of business. You're the one that knows it best. And if someone is not, gathering that information from you and helping you understand all of it, then they don't have a really good grasp on what is about to happen either. And what's going to happen is you're going to assume they're taking care of everything. They're going to assume that you are going to give them everything they need to take care of everything. And when you don't, then you're going to have a problem right off the bat.
0: I was working with a financial advisor, advisor, um, a couple of days ago, and he started getting some of the documents from a firm in terms of like what a transition was going to look like. And there was like hundreds and hundreds of fields. And I was like, I promise you, like, this is a good sign. This means that they're yeah. covering all the bases and, you know, quality in means, you know, quality out on the, on, on, the paperwork when it goes out. So that makes a ton of sense.
1: Yeah. It's kind of one of those things where it's almost, um, like counterintuitive, that a firm might come to you and start giving you all of this work that you might look at these forms and say, like, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of things that they're asking me to do. Like, isn't this thing, aren't these things that they should be doing? But really, if they're coming to you and giving you work, you might want to take a good look at what that work is, because it's probably something that they cannot do, that they have to rely on you to do. And if a firm is not coming to you and asking for some of those things, it's because they're relying very heavily on you to do a lot of the work after the fact. If they're prepping you in advance then and asking for you for a lot of things, then they are doing their due diligence on what is going to come next. So it is a little counterintuitive. And I know some advisors have a really tough time with that because, you know, especially coming from like a warehouse situation. A lot of them have their own service associates that do a lot of their paperwork and do a lot of this stuff for them and if they are not bringing a staff with them, they might not be used to filling out all of this information and knowing where to find it. Um but that's why the education coming from the firm that you're joining on how to do all of that is super important.
0: Awesome. That's 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 really helpful. So w- w- when I help financial advisors kind of explore the, the 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 capabilities of a firm's transition team. There are some firms, especially in a post-COVID world, that do a lot of their stuff remotely. Their transition specialists will kind of, they'll be in the home office and, you know, they'll say that they've really bolstered their capa- capabilities just kind of being forced to work remotely during those years. Mm-hmm. And then there's other firms that their value proposition is, hey, we're going to have people, in your office, you know, getting their hands dirty, like looking over your shoulder and making sure, you know, if anything goes wrong, there's someone right there to help you out. What What is your opinion on like a firm that can do remote work versus in-person work? Do you have an opinion on that? What's more effective?
1: I have very strong opinions on this, um, but I don't have a clear answer because okay. it, it completely depends on the type of transition and the type of at your book of business, the custodian you're joining and the type of firm that you're joining. And so there's a lot of things that can really go into determining whether you need on-site support or remote support. Um, I I do both. I do a lot of both. I I enjoy traveling to advisor's offices because I like to actually meet them in person. Um, advisors, tend to have high expectations sometimes of things and you know they're very like financial advisors are all they're very like based in money and value of things and so they like to see the work being done sometimes because when they see the work being done they can see what they're paying for they can see that Progress is being made. And so being on site sometimes is super helpful to their psyche just to understand like, hey, everybody here is working really long hours. They're putting in the time and effort. I have handholders here that I can go directly to, ask questions, get the answers right then and there. I don't have to worry about what's going on behind the scenes. I don't have to micromanage. I can just kind of see that these people are here and they're and they're working. I think that's a little bit tougher of a pill to swallow. Sometimes when it's a remote transition, I sometimes I just have advisors that are constantly asking for things remotely and they don't understand all of the work that goes into a transition. And because they can't see it, it's almost like they're checking in to make sure I'm doing work, which can sometimes be like it can be a bit of a a headache sometimes um, because all I, I, you know, like, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing transitions for 15 years. I, um, I, I do my job very well, but it's hard sometimes for someone to just to not see me doing it and to just trust that I'm doing it. And I think that's just human nature. Um, And so, but sometimes I get more done when I'm working remotely because I don't have anyone interrupting me and in the work to ask a bunch of questions. But sometimes those questions are super important and it's important to get the answers that you that you need right away. And so there's just a, it's a balance. It's all a balance. If you have a book of business that is say, doing an internal transition. You know, you're like staying at the same custodian, you have to do a bunch of like higher fire forms or limited power of attorneys and, and your, and your clients are all very DocuSign capable. And there's not a ton of like, uh, there's not a ton of communication that needs to happen in person. Well, that might be something that is a candidate for remote support. You know, it's, uh it's all the same forms. It's all the same process. But if you have, maybe a retiring advisor who's selling a book of business or making a transition with the thought process that they will be selling their book of business. And their, you know, their client base is a little bit older. They have a lot of RMDs. They have a lot of, you know, interesting setups on their accounts and stuff like that. Uh, They, a lot of them want to come into your office. If you're a small town advisor, you know, there's some firms that are very focused on the geographics of their books of business and, Sometimes they're just teams that want their client base to come in and sign paperwork in person um, and or send them in the mail. Like that might be a candidate for in-person support because I can be there and I can be printing documents, I can be tagging documents, I can be answering questions that clients have. I can be interacting with those clients if they in fact have very specific questions. We're relying a little less on technology, but it might just be appropriate for the situation. So I think it's it's all dependent on your comfort level. If you're a micromanager, you might wanna have somebody on site because okay. it's hard to micromanage remote people. But uh, also like if you're a micromanager, like you might not want to be for a transition. <laughs> you know, you might- oh, it's,
0: it's personal preference. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's, it's all just dependent on all the different factors. I can usually tell just from asking a few questions who needs remote support and who needs on site support. Um, But also, you you just have to go with whatever everybody's comfort level is.
0: Awesome. So you've done countless transitions at this point. And I'm sure there's mistakes made along the way and you learn from those to make sure that or try to prevent them from 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 happening again. And you see some some amazing transitions as well. Like what are the what are the qualities of like the team members that have had like an, an absolute lights out transition? What are the things that need to happen?
1: Um the biggest thing is patience. Everybody needs to have patience. Uh, things are going to probably take longer than you expected them to longer than you want them to. Uh, I always like to say like, just, just have like lower expectations than what you normally would in a situation. If you had say a new client, because it might only take you 15, 20 minutes to onboard a new client, Um, you know, if they're in your office or something, you're gathering some information, you're opening up an account, you're generating a document, but now take that times 500 accounts. You are wanting to do everything all at once, because obviously, like, you just want things to be done as quickly as possible. But that's just, it's not logical. So patience, the proper management of expectations Everybody just needs to be on the same page about what everyone else is doing, how long that realistically takes. The you Most advisors want to get on the phone. And they want to talk to their clients and they want to say, oh, you know, this is what I'm doing. Uh, I already have some information. I'm going to send you documents. You're going to sign them and everything's going to be great. Well, yes, that sounds lovely. But when you say that to a client and you don't properly let them know that you are doing 500, 1,000 of these all at once, then a client hears, oh, I'm going to follow this up with something that you're going to sign, and it's going to be done. And then I'm not going to have to worry about it anymore. And when that is a client's expectation, and they don't immediately get a follow up with something for them to sign, well, then, you know, you're looking at them possibly reaching out and wondering where everything is. And them reaching out is, not only damaging the relationship a little bit because they're expecting something that you haven't given them, but it's slowing down the process of calling all of the other clients because you have to have all of these conversations with clients about how long things take and what additional information you need. And so expectations, patience, um, no over-promising team dynamics is another huge one. Uh, technology is another big one. I think Team dynamics, obviously, like you want to make sure that everybody is happy. Obviously, the expectations are managed. Everybody knows what their role is during the transition and that they're okay with it and that they understand that they might be having some longer days than normal with some work that isn't necessarily what they're used to doing. Um, And then technology, technology. Well, technology is a very tough one in transitions. I could I could talk all day about transition technology, but the problem with using technology in transitions is that there isn't that much of an opportunity for tons of technology during transitions because you're going from one system to a new system. And the new system is a custodial system that's really only set up to do the things that you need for that, those particular accounts. And depending on the custodian that you join, like it just depends. Some of them spend a lot of money on their technology and really try to make things as seamless as possible. Others, they, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. there's just a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts in the transition and there's a lot of things to think about and I don't remember what your original question was, but
0: <laughs> um, it's okay. Just um, some of the things and like traits of like a team that have like a a really, really good transition. And I I think you talked about a lot of that. I was going to leave this until the end. I had just some commonly asked questions that financial advisors have asked me, but just talking about like teams, do a lot of your teams like incentivize their staff members when they're making it? I have advisors ask me all the time, like, how do I incentivize all my staff to kind of like be all on the same page? Do you have any like best practices with that, or things you've seen like work out really well?
1: Yes, uh, this that is a. I'm really glad that you asked this question because this is one of the biggest issues that I see during transitions. Is uh, you know, like let's let's think of an example. You're going from, and I use this example because this was me. I was going from being an employee at a Fortune 500 company where I had a 401k, full benefits, stock options, literally, and I had an an entire HR team. I had multiple managers. The advisor I was working for was really just like the person, you know, the person that was telling me the work to do, but they weren't really my boss per se. They weren't really the ones that paid my paycheck or anything like that. So it was a very, very different dynamic and a very different setup than when I left that and went to be the director of operations for an RIA, which is a small business that is owned by one or two people. I was the only employee. So I I was the one doing everything that they didn't want to do, which is a lot. And it was a lot of stuff that I was not used to doing. And so a lot of these advisors that are leaving and wanting to bring their staff with them, they're so focused on, okay, I want to bring my staff because they're very aware of my book of business. They have good relationships with all the clients. I've been working with them forever. Well, you have to understand that you can't just say I'll match your salary and we'll do this as a small business. Like that is not the same thing as working for a fortune 500 company with a very specific set of, of benefits. And so there's a lot to think about when you are going from uh, being an employee, a W2 employee of a firm to starting your own, or to even joining an existing firm. Like this isn't just for those that are starting RIAs, like it's it's for those that are joining independent firms. It's very different going from a large firm to a small firm. And it's very different for your staff. And a lot of times you're not even telling your staff until much, much later. Yeah. And I think I'm seeing a trend more so these days where advisors are just not telling their staff at all until the very last minute. And so literally consider being on the other side of that conversation. Consider you have been at a company for 20 years You're very comfortable there. You're very good at your job. You're very, you know, you've got your 401k, you've got your stock options, everything. And then your sort of boss comes to you and says, I'm leaving, come with me. I'll match your salary. And and we're gonna work super hard for the next six months. (laughs) Uh, So you'll probably work like, you know, 10 to 12 hour days, but don't worry. Like I'll get you lunch every day or whatever. You know, like that- is a very jarring conversation to have with someone. Oh, and by the way, you can't tell anyone. So incentives not only have to be used to entice someone to come with you, but to make up for all of the different, all of the extra work that these people are going to be doing for you that they might not have had any say in and they might not have even known about. And so, I do think it's super important to incentivize a team to make sure that the matching of their salaries that you're doing on the other side is taking into account the things that they are losing and the things that are going to be different and making sure that they understand that they are valued, that you want them to be a part of the team because you want them to be a part of the team, not just because they know your book of business best, but also that you give them a little bit of grace and time to digest the information that you're providing and to talk about it with their families and to understand what's expected of them and then to to also give them what they need in order to feel like them saying yes is their decision yeah. and that it's yeah. being that, that they're they're helping you and they're a part of a team because a lot of times i i've seen staff members quit in the middle of transitions purely because they had no idea what was going to happen to them and once it started happening and the expectations were so high and and personalities were clashing and and timelines were extended people just said this isn't worth it to me i am you know you're not giving me anything extra and yet you're expecting so much more for me and I'm not going to do it anymore. And so no, on the no, other no. side of that.
0: Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, sorry. The other side of that is make sure you want to bring those staff members with you and that you're not just doing it because it is a convenience during the transition. Like you are you are going to be running a business now. You weren't before, even though it kind of felt like you were. Um, you want to make sure that team dynamics are going to stay the way that you want them to that they're going to be a fit in this new role and that they are you know that they belong there and they want to be there you you want to make sure that they understand that if they have new uh roles and responsibilities which was something that i did not understand when i went from being a service associate to the director of operations of a business i didn't realize i was going to be the hr department the billing department the you know, the, the dish cleaner, the coffee maker, you know, I didn't understand all of those things. I should have, yeah. yeah, but I didn't. And, and I, a lot of resentment was created in that situation because I didn't understand that. And because they didn't tell me that. And, and because it was never discussed, it was just expected.
0: That's, that's really good to know. And most financial advisors I speak with they want to incentivize. Um, they just sometimes have questions around like how to do it or like how to, how to make it work. And that's, that makes a lot of sense. So I appreciate the insight. Yeah. So the fun stuff. So, so, so protocol, pro, pro, protocol and, 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 and non-protocol. I know you, I know you talk about this a lot. I think a lot of financial advisors know, you know, at this point, what kind of can and cannot happen from from a protocol standpoint? But I've been speaking with a lot of financial advisors recently from a from a UBS, some Morgan Stanley, and 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 Edward Jones. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there that you know they can't reach out to their clients. And I had someone say the other day, Corey. I'm, I'm not just going to transition and like sit at my desk and literally wait for the phone to ring. Like that's that's not my personality and I don't think that financial advisors are doing that. Can can you walk through kind of on the non-protocol side like what transitions look like?
1: Yes. Uh I think I I like get anxiety whenever the the words non-protocol come up in a situation. Yeah. Uh, I like to prepare for transitions. I like to be able to see what it is that I'm dealing with and working with prior to the actual transition taking place. And that is really not something that can be done in a non-protocol situation. And so the toughest thing about a non-protocol transition is really that you have to prepare for it as though you're sort of starting over from scratch, but you're doing it in a bubble where everything is wanting to be done quickly, efficiently, and legally, which is a huge thing. So in a non-protocol transition, I have a lot of advisors that reach out to me and I'm their first call. Um, And they just say, like, I have so many questions. I am at a non-protocol firm and I know that it's going to be hard and I know that I'm not allowed to do this, this, and this, but I just... I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. And the first thing I always say is get your contract reviewed by an attorney. And I'm sure you have a list of attorneys that you normally refer advisors to. I do as well, but it's important that they have their contract reviewed by a securities attorney that does this regularly and all the time, because a lot of times I'll have advisors who will come to me and be like, oh yeah, I had my my neighbor review yeah. my contract yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, no, you need a second opinion because this industry is, is weird and very specific. And the things that apply to legal contract review in other industries are not going to apply to this situation. And there are a lot of things that will apply to this situation that you are not going to get from another attorney. So that is the first thing, first and foremost, attorney attorney attorney, get your contract reviewed. If you don't have a copy of your contract, see if you can find one. See if you can find one or see if you can find someone who has already left the firm that, you know, knows something about what's going to happen. A lot of times these attorneys, one of the ones that I two of the ones that I refer a lot of business to, they know a lot about they probably know more about some certain contracts for advisors from certain firms than the advisors know and they're the ones that sign them and it's just because they do these all the time and so they might even understand more about your situation than you do um and so that's that's step one in a non-protocol transition because I don't give legal advice and I'm not going to tell you what you can and cannot do in a non-protocol situation until your attorney tells you what you can and cannot do. And then we go and craft a plan around what you are and are not able to do. I have seen a lot more of these non-protocol transitions be more consistent in past years just from the volume of transitions that are happening. It's so I now feel like I understand non-protocol transitions a little bit better and can at least consult on what they probably will look like, mm-hmm. but still get the advice from your attorney because they're gonna be the ones that are gonna have to help you if something goes wrong in the non-protocol situation. But one of the biggest things that I've seen in the past few years that is a trend is those advisors who have non-solicitation agreements, They the attorneys will suggest that they use something like a non-solicitation letter which is the first thing that you do with an with your clients? You are allowed to call your clients in most of these cases. You are allowed to contact them. Sometimes it's it's you can only contact them once. Um, but the thing that you do is you have this conversation with the advisor or with the clients. You tell them what you're doing, and then you tell them and you be completely transparent. I'm not really allowed to solicit you or or ask you to come with me or do anything like that in order for me to even really explain anything else i would need you to sign something that says like i did not do this with you i did not have this conversation i didn't i didn't solicit you and most of the time clients are willing to sign that just to get more information yeah and so there are these loopholes and these ways that these attorneys tell you to deal with these non-protocol situations and so just because you have a non-solicitation agreement doesn't mean that you're Sol you know it it just means that you have to do things a certain way you have to use certain language and you have to be super hyper aware of what you can and cannot do because the last thing you want is for you to call a client you solicit a client the client goes back to somebody at the prior firm and says oh yeah so-and-so called me and sent me a bunch of paperwork to sign like that's where you create situations where the other firm, might start looking into the methods that you were using in the transition and come after you for them. But there are ways around that. The attorneys are really good at telling you what they are. And I'm very good at helping you follow those rules and understand how to put together a process that doesn't break any of them. And so you know, non-solicitation agreements, once those things are signed and your clients have said like, hey, I was not solicited by this advisor, I wanna know more and I want to figure out what's going on by my own volition. Well, then that kind of kicks off the process almost like it would for a regular transition. Now it's all about gathering clients information. And the important part there is knowing what information you need because in a protocol situation, you know what data you're allowed to bring with you. It's a, a lot of it is contact information, but because you're allowed to bring account titles, you can at least know like what account types and everything that your clients have. So you know what additional information that you're going to need to ask them for. In a non protocol situation, if you don't remember the account types that your clients have and what their situation is, well, asking them for their social security number, date of birth and address isn't going to cut it. You know, what if they have an IRA? Well, you need you need to know who their beneficiaries are. You need to know if it's, you know, you need to know all of this additional information that isn't going to necessarily be covered in every single account type that you open, um, but that you might need, you know, clients with a trust account, they're, you're going to ask different questions to somebody that has a trust than you would with someone that just has a taxable account. And so education is where your pre-transition preparation is focused in a non-protocol situation. You want to know, okay, when I am allowed to then have these conversations with clients, what am I telling them? What am I asking them? what am I collecting from them and how am I going to do that efficiently? And um, I will say that I am working with a firm called Onboard now that has, that's creating a transition technology that is specifically geared towards non-protocol transitions. And I have used it in one. Um, and it's great because it's a technology that allows you to send a text message to a client and start collecting some of their personal data and um, uh-huh and it's it's it gets connected to redtail your crm and so there's it it skirts all of those um those rules and regulations about you having uh, having access to the data at any point and and so like that's it's something that i'm going to do a push uh for in the future and talk about because um i think the hardest part of non protocol transitions is a collection of client data because there is so much of it and because there's so much to remember and because you have to do it with so many people, um, you know, technology would be great. And I feel like there is an opportunity for technology to be used in that process, even if it can't necessarily be used for every part of the process, because not the whole point of a non-protocol transition is for the firms that you're leaving to make the process as difficult as possible for you and to scare you. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) as best they can, so that you don't leave. But know that if you are a non-protocol firm, it doesn't matter. Advisors do it all the time. They leave non-protocol firms all the time. They're successful doing it. Yes, some of them are pursued legally. But if you have a good plan and you have a good attorney, then and you follow the rules, like there's nothing that's that that legal pursuance is going to be able to do to you except maybe slow down the process but again if the process is slowed down a little bit that's okay you just manage the expectations with your clients and with your team and as long as everybody's on the same page and they know what's going on and how long something's going to take then nobody's going to be mad you know have you ever called a client and said like hey this transfer is going to take 5 to 7 business days and then be like you know what the heck no they they understand that you can't control that process like you can only control what you can control but but telling them what the process is so they don't come to you two days into a transfer and say where's my money and get all freaked out like that's where you can control a process is just being fully transparent with everyone involved in the process to let them know just how long something's going to take and exactly what the process is going to be like and and then you're not having difficult conversations with clients. You're just having conversations with clients. Yeah. Like you're the one that's making conversations difficult. You don't, they don't have to be difficult. They, they can be easy. <laughs> you just have to know how to have them and you have to do them right.
0: I think that's such a big takeaway because I think financial advisors want the yes. I will yep. oh, make yeah. you so bad that, um, you know, they might oversell the process a little bit along the way. And you're right, just setting those expectations that, hey, there's going to be a few hiccups along the way. This is a little bit messy, but we're going to be on the other side, you know, soon, I think is a really good takeaway. That's awesome.
1: And that's, you know, you only know what you know, and your clients only know what they know. And so they don't know that you're doing this with 700 other people. They don't know that when they call your office and they don't hear back for three hours because you've been on the phone with 30 other people during that time, they don't know that unless you tell them, unless you say, hey, I'm so sorry. It might be tougher to get a hold of me than usual. My response times might be a little bit delayed. We might have to ask you for information that we have had from you for 20 years. I might have to have you tell me stuff like what the name of your company is that you work, like what your birthday is. And while I understand that those are all things that I should probably know, Because I have to collect them from everyone and I wasn't allowed to bring anything with me, I I apologize in advance, but that's what's going to happen. Or the conversation might be hey, I'm just calling to let you know what's going on. Somebody else might have to call you and ask you some of these questions. Just know that they are on my team. We're doing it because we have to. We don't want to. We would have brought this information if we could, but we weren't allowed. And so non protocol transitions. I can't stand them, but I can't stand them for reasons that are different than what an advisor would think. Like, I just, I want to take every single piece of data ahead of time and do as much as I possibly can with it to prepare for the transition. And I cannot do that in a non-protocol transition. And so it they don't have to be a type of transition that advisors are scared of or that they hate they're just different and they require a different process that might be an extended timeline. And you just have to take that into consideration when you are planning.
0: That's my experience too. Uh, definitely more time, more effort, but from, from my seat, at least, you know, a protocol and a non-protocol, I've seen transitions equally as successful. You know, oh yeah. Maybe, maybe a few more lost hairs, but more, e- e- equally as successful.
1: I mean, Honestly, a non-protocol transition to me is like the perfect time for you to get your book in order. You you may be doing a non-protocol transition and you have clients that have been with you that you don't that you talk to maybe once a year that have been with you for years and that they're just not a fit anymore for your business model and so in a non-protocol transition likely those clients are going to get a call from another advisor that's telling them that they're their their new advisor. And so like, in some situations, that conversation is taken care of, you don't have to worry about it, like they're going to get a call, and they're going to have a new advisor. Um, And, and so in a non protocol transition, that's, it might be the best thing for you, if they do call you, and they ended up up talking to you, and you didn't want to bring them to your new business, you just you can explain that to them. You can say, you know, I'm starting a business of our own. This is what the business model is going to look like. This is what we're focused on. I, you know, I apologize, but the, what we were doing with your account is just no longer a fit for what we are trying to do for the future, but you are going to be assigned a new advisor. And so you're going to be completely taken care of and you don't have to worry about it. Um, You know, something like that along those lines, it's a, It just, it provides, a non-protocol transition provides you a way to start over from scratch, which I know not everybody wants to hear. It doesn't sound great, but think about it from the positive aspects. You get to start over from scratch. You get to only bring the clients that you want to bring. You get to focus on the accounts that you want. And it's a time for you to confirm with all of your clients that all of their information that they're giving you is fully 100% accurate. Like, You might have clients that you've had for 20 years that have had 12 grandkids and six of them are not listed as contingent beneficiaries on their IRAs. And if something were to happen to them and they passed away, then six of their half their grandkids are SOL. You know, so this is the time to just confirm with them exactly what they want with their accounts, how they want them set up. So in a non-protocol situation, it's less about you mirroring everything that was the same on the other side, like you do in a, in, in a situation where you have all the data and more about you confirming that everything is correct and that it's set up the way that your clients want it to be and that your business is set up the way that you want it to be. So I, I find that sometimes non-protocol transitions, while I don't love doing them, um, are better for some advisors to just be able to position everything the way they want to from the start.
0: Shr- shrinking to grow is, is, is one of the exactly. best things that you can do. And there's very few advisors we speak to that are trying to bring everybody. So, yeah. So, like, best case scenario from your experience and like average timeline, I'm just going into like frequently asked questions now.
1: Yeah.
0: How long does a transition take?
1: Oh, I think the timeline has shortened in recent years, just from the use of DocuSign and efficiencies and, and stuff like that. Normally I would say six months, but in these cases, I've seen transitions take one month from start to finish. I think there, again, it's a lot of factors that play into it. Um, It's less about your AUM, I think, and more about your volume You know, if you're trying to transition 3,800 accounts, like that's going to be a very different transition than when you're trying to transition 300 accounts, you know? So I would say that the volume of accounts uh, and households is really what's going to extend the timeline of your transition um, and the methods that you're using to send paperwork and get your clients to sign paperwork and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it still takes, it's still like a three to seven business days for assets to transfer on the ACAT platform. And so there's a couple of days built in there where that's not going to change and it hasn't changed. And so there's still like a week in there where it's processing time. Um, But yeah, I mean, I've seen advisors who are doing internal transitions, like they might be leaving an existing RIA and starting their own and sticking with the same custodian. And so they're really just kind of like having to do internal transitions that take two or three weeks to get everything out and processed and done. Um, But I've seen, I've seen advisor teams that are maybe purchasing a book of business that has 2000 accounts and you've got You've got your A clients, your B clients, your C clients. You might all go all the way down to like some L clients or something. Uh-huh. And those ones you might not even be calling for two or three months because they're just uh-huh. not, they're not important to do in the beginning. And so I think I I think if you have the right team and you have the right technology, then it's taking a lot less time than it used to. Um, but I think you can be pretty efficient. And then the only factors that are really playing on the timeline or how long it takes your clients to sign things, which I don't know about you, but somebody sends me something like, it's probably going to take me a few days to even open it and do yeah, it.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, so yeah, you never know. <laughs> your clients are always a factor.
0: So I, I I can ask you literally like 50, 50 more questions, but I want to just ask you one more, the, the, the recruiter answer to what's the best time of year to to start a transition is, is anytime. But like, I, I, ideally, if an advisor asks you, what's the best time of year to do this? Is there any time that's better than others?
1: Honestly, I'm going to give a very different answer than what I've heard anybody ever answer. And I'd say summer. Be, every, nobody ever wants to do anything in the summer because they have their own travel, um, kids' schedules, like their clients are traveling. But to me, like... I think everybody's working less in the summer and so why not use that time to uh to to put together a process that's that's going to take you a lot of time. I find that many advisors choose the beginning of the year or the fall. And so the fall for me is super tough like my schedule just gets super packed and they're back to back to back and it's very difficult because there's holidays coming up and school is starting and and so I'm not sure why everybody chooses fall it seems like a weird a weird time to do it um the beginning of the year for me seems uh pretty decent just because you're giving yourself the entire year to worry about things like RMDs um The only problem with the beginning of the year sometimes is like taxes is that, you know, you, the, your clients start to get 1099s or something, and they can't call you for their 1099s because their 1099s are with their former firm. But most of the firms that you're leaving have like 1-800 numbers that you can call to get documents and you just have to confirm who you are. And a lot of them have logins that you can use to receive those tax documents. And so... Um, I'd say the end of the year is probably the worst time just because not only because of the holidays, but because those accounts are going to generate, um, two statements now, you know, the statement of the new firm, once it's at the new firm and the statement at the old firm and your taxes are going to be a little bit affected by that just because it all depends on where the accounts were on the last day of the year. Um, so I'd say the end of the year is probably the least fun. Um, but if it were me, I would choose probably spring or summer just because I feel like everybody, I don't know, everybody's a little less busy with work. And so I, I'm i opening up emails and signing DocuSigns faster than I normally would, I think, because um, I don't have a thousand emails in my inbox. I have 50 emails in my inbox or whatever it is. So. My answer is a little bit different, but to your point, I don't think there's a bad time of year to do this. You can still do it at the end of the year. It's not going to, you know, I think advisors get very, very hung up on things like when I'm getting paid, when my quarterly billing is done, um, when, you know, when my vacation is and I understand all of those factors, but it's a drawn out process that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. And so you can't, you can't make everyone happy all the time. You can't choose a time that's going to be best for everyone. So like, just choose what is best for you personally and, and roll with it. And, I, like and it. I do, I do think that your timeline, if you think that your timeline right now for a transition is six months or more, like it doesn't need to be that. I I often have advisors call me and they're like I'm thinking about sometime like next fall and I'm like no let me answer a few of your questions and I bet your timeline will move up up by at least six months like you're saying next fall because you don't know the answers to all of your questions yet and you are just like trying to plan but once everybody knows what to expect from a transition I think those timelines move up very uh, significantly and you can and really you can you can really do it faster than you think.
0: And sooner than you think. I appreciate it. Greer, you're 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 awesome. I I appreciate the time. If uh an advisor wants to learn more about your services, where could they reach you?
1: Uh so my website is advisertransition services.com. Advisor with an O, not an E. Um, I am also very active on LinkedIn. So you can look me up on LinkedIn, Greer Rubling, G R I E R R U B E L I N G. Um and uh, you can also email me at Greer, G-R-I-E-R, at AdvisortransitionServices.com, which I keep saying I need to shorten and still haven't done it.
0: <laughs> Mine's so long as well. I, I, I understand. Thanks so much for your time. And make sure you check out Greer's website. She has so much awesome content on there, tips on how to start your planning for your transition, data gathering worksheets, resignation letter templates, all sorts of things that Uh, can really help you out in a transition. Um, If you have any questions about the broker-dealer RIA landscape, my contact information is below as well. And uh, Greer, I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really, really hope you find this podcast of value. If you do, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends.